Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josh Wall. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth, and we are excited that you are with us this morning, whether you are a regular attender or here because someone said they'd feed you breakfast uh, or you're not sure why you're here. We are excited that you've decided to join us, and it is good to come together and worship together this morning. Uh, We've been working through this series over the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue to work through it throughout the fall that's on the Apostles' Creed. Um, And the Apostles' Creed, broadly speaking, is the the major thoroughfares and freeways and highways, the major outlines of the Christian faith. Not that the Apostles wrote it, uh, but that it was written uh, as a representation of what the Apostles actually believed and what they thought to be true and what, honestly, they lived and died for. And so we've been studying and digging into this thing that is thousands, about thousands of years old, hundreds and hundreds of years old. Um, to see what it had to say back in the day and what it means to say to us today. So, we just prayed, but I want to pray again. And I have a microphone, so I can do that. Uh, So, will you join me in prayer? (sighs) Heavenly Father, it is good to sing, it is good to worship, it is good to say things that remind us of who you are and who we are. We come to church and we come to this place from many places and with many orientations. We come feeling whole and we come feeling fragmented and broken. And in all this, we pray that you speak to us, that you are present to us, that sermons, that church is not about music or words, but is about you and Jesus. And we pray you are present with us today. Speak to us, get our attention, and teach us how to respond to the things that you prompt us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are moments in life when everything changes. Sometimes those are big, right? They're they're moments of birth and death. They're moments of marriage. And sometimes they're fairly small and innocuous. And yet you know in those moments or shortly thereafter that something has shifted and changed. One of those for me, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was somewhere mid-childhood. So I think probably like eight-ish, right? Eight to ten. Old enough, I remember it, but not old enough, I forget certain details. Uh, And I was with my mom and we were in our house And we had guests and family over. And my dad was cooking. My dad doesn't cook. By cook, I mean grill. My dad can grill great. Can't cook to save his life. But he grills a mighty fine anything. So my dad was out with some of our guests. And they were out. Uh, We had this little uh, patio area out in the back. And our kitchen was up above. And so uh, my mom sent me out on an errand. Hey, go tell your dad something. I don't remember what. Go, Go tell your dad this. So... I walk down, I walk down a couple of stairs, I walk through a three-season porch, and I walk outside, and my dad's there talking with, I think, probably two other guys, if I remember correctly. And I walk up, and I go, Daddy, Mommy wants blah, 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 blah. And he said, okay, son. And then he took me uh, and around the corner, and he looked at his friends, 
and, and we had this moment. And my father is a, was a good man. My father is a good man. So this is, this is no disrespect on him in any way, shape, or form. But it was a moment where things changed. And he said, I think you are too old to call me daddy. That's, that's the language that little kids use. You're a big kid. You should call me dad. And I remember going like, okay. And I also just felt weird. I don't think I felt ashamed. I think I felt embarrassed that I had embarrassed him. I didn't mean to, obviously, but I still did. Um, and there was something that changed fundamentally, I think, in hindsight, 30 years later, about my identity to some degree in that straightforward and innocuous conversation. The sermon today is really one that deals uh, with identity and who we are and what that means for all of us. The section of the creed that we're working through, uh, just, to, just to read it out, just to say it out loud, is the part that goes, I believe, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy, born of, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And we're going to dig into what it means to deal with all of that. So there's, there's a couple of details we need to walk through. And, and the challenge with dealing with the Apostles' Creed, realistically, I think, from where I sit, is that it is so rich and thick, we could talk about it for hours, right? It's this, it's, since it's this big, broad road, there's a lot of stuff that's jammed into not a lot of verses. So we're going to actually run through this bit by bit, and then we're going to talk about uh, what it means and what do we do with it at the end. Right? So let's start in the beginning. So it starts with the declaration, I believe. Now, believe is interesting and tricky. It, belief is straightforward, right? We know what it means to believe, and what it means to believe in many ways is similar to what it me- meant to believe back when the creed was first written, except there's a couple of major differences. Belief for us functions in many ways like the word love, which is ambiguous, right? I love my wife, and I love ice cream, and I obviously love those at two different amounts because ice cream is awesome, but my wife is better, uh, Right? And, and belief functions along the same way. Because we say things like, uh, I, I don't, but I have friends who say things like, I believe in UFOs, and I believe in Bigfoot, and I say, and I believe in Jesus. And it's easy to conflate and combine all those two. But in the ancient world, that wouldn't have been, you, you couldn't have made that same declaration, right? Because belief means to trust, but it's really a trust that is grounded in action rather than abstraction, right? So in the ancient world, you couldn't believe in something that was far away. You believed in things for the most part that you were involved in and did. The Apostles' Creed, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we have some good ballpark ideas. And it was roughly in the time of Christian persecution. It was the time when standing in a public square, I was going to say sphere, but square is better, standing in a public square and saying, I am a Christian, Christiano sum in Latin, that making that declaration was antagonizing to the government, would get you locked up, would get you, uh, could get you sent to the Colosseum where you would be fed to lions or forced to fight people or to be killed or slaughtered. The declaration of I believe is, is an embodied act for the people who wrote this. This is not abstraction. This is not removed. This is not I believe in UFOs. This is uh, a deliberate choice towards certain things and towards a sense of action. The metaphor 
that I like most in contemporary society is we can reference chairs, right? And say, I believe, I believe that chairs will hold me in theory, but real belief is when we actually sit down in a chair and trust in a chair. And that's what the writers of the Apostles' Creed would mean when they say they believe, that it is action embodied, not an abstract removed idea. I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, means the, the one who saves or the rescuer. In English, it would be translated as Joshua. So thanks, Mom and Dad. Gets that a high bar for me to live up to. Um, and, and Christ is an interesting word. Christ is actually, uh, we need to understand some language to, to get to the point of Christ. So, so back in Israel, back when Jesus was alive, uh, back when Jesus was out walking on the earth, uh, he would have spoken Aramaic, most likely. That's what we're pretty darn certain, that he would have spoken Aramaic. It would have been the language of conversation. His mother tongue would have been in Aramaic. The written language of Israel at the time would have been in Hebrew, but Hebrew was most likely not spoken from everything that we can see. It would have been the formal language, the language of the temple, the language of big formal scripts. It would be the language of the people, but the language that everybody spoke wasn't Hebrew anymore. It was Aramaic, which is a close cousin, right? They're not that far away. Um, And then the language that everybody learned, if you were to learn to write in another language, would have been Greek. Because it was the language of trade. It was the language of commerce. It would be the equivalent of English today, right? If you were to not have English as your mother tongue and you were to pick a language that you wanted to learn, you're going to pick one of the major languages of trade, which in today's society is mostly English, right? So, uh, so this, this, all, this all pertains. So, so Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic word for Messiah, And the Messiah was a very concrete title for Jews. So the word Christ is a very concrete title for Jews back in the day. Because the Messiah was the one that was promised shortly after David's reign. The Messiah was actually promised in the very beginning of scriptures. But after David, there becomes this figure that's known as the son of David that's going to come, right? It's the thing we get out of the prophets that out of the stump of Jesse, there will be a new sprout. It's this resurrection kind of idea that is going to come and redeem and restore the world. It's something that happens in Jewish worship services today. There's still moments when they wait for the Messiah and they pray for the Messiah and they reflect on the Messiah, right? So when they're saying Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ, it's this enacted faith that is very concrete and specific. And then it slides into the next, t- the next phrase, which is his only son. This shows up a couple different times in scripture, this relationship of of parent and child, a father and son. And we get, and I get, and we should acknowledge that for some of us, that we did not have the best relationship with our dads. For some of us, we didn't have relationships with our dads. Some of us wish we didn't have relationships with our dads. And so whenever we talk about this, we do it sensitively. And yet it's still the image that we get out of scripture that there's this this father and son dynamic. It shows up in in verses in Romans where it says, talking about the gospel, it says, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, right? There's the Messiah language again. Who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It shows up in in John where we talked about it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who has come from the father full of grace and truth. And a little bit later, 
in the, in the book of John. It says, no one has seen God, but the only one, but the only, but the one and only son who is himself God and his closest relationship with the father has made him known. So it's interesting, I think, what's most interesting uh, about that son language uh, and really about the son-father language uh, is actually the words. When we reference God, when we come before God in church services or if you listen to people when they pray, we'll talk about God as father. Um, we'll talk about God often as powerful and big. And that's all true and very true. But the word that Jesus most often uses isn't, isn't father in a formal sense because Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. The word that Jesus uses is this word Abba. And Abba, sometimes we translate it as father because that's where we use it elsewhere in scripture. But that's not actually what it means in a more literal sense. It means daddy. It means dada, right? Abba, dada, the thing you can teach to a one-year-old, two syllables that repeat, the things that show up in a lot of our cultures and language. It means daddy or dada. And this is, frankly, it's when you tease it out, it's a fairly, fairly shocking declaration. And it would have been back in the ancient world just kind of as it is today. Because what it says is that God is not abstract, God is not removed. And we in Western American Christian society often like the complex notion of this idealized, thoughtful, intellectual God. And that stands in contrast to the message of Jesus that speaks with this degree of intimacy, that speaks in baby talk, that speaks of that primal, connected language. Daddy is a word of intimacy. It's, it's those moments of whispers between parents and children. It's the language of quiet moments of speaking truth and deep meaning to one another. It's the moment that I, I experienced earlier this week. I was gone for a couple of days. Uh, John and I were at a conference down in Indiana. We got back Wednesday afternoon, late afternoon, um, right around the time when, my, when my, my boy Samuel is in kindergarten this year. So he rides the bus and he takes the bus, which is a terrifying thing to send a kindergartner on a bus. And you're like, oh man, there he goes. So he takes the bus to school and back. I got home a little bit before. So sent the gal who does childcare for us. I said, thanks for your time. And I was just sitting on the front steps waiting. I have two little twin girls. They're running around and playing. School bus pulls up in front. The door is open. My boy sees me. His eyes light up. I've missed him. He's missed me. He jogs forward because he's too cool to run, right? We don't do that anymore. But he jogs forward, ditches his backpack on the steps, doesn't say a word, and just climbs onto my lap and cuddles. And he just sits there for about five minutes. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't need to say a word. That's the language of Abba. It's the language that shows up with my girls. One of them in particular got, had this phase where she wanted to tell you secrets, which is adorable. She'd go, Daddy, I tell you a secret. This is about a year ago. She would climb up onto your shoulder to get her mouth as close as she physically could to your ear. And she would say, nonsense. And she'd go, 
And then she would look at you with these eyes that shined and just say, you'd like my secret? That's the language of Abba. The language when Jesus references his father is not abstract. It's not removed. It's not far away. It doesn't say God who made all the mighty mountains in the universe, though that is true. He uses this intimate language of baby talk back and forth. And when the creed references him as a son, it's not the son as the prince of heaven or of glory. It is that Abba relationship. Right? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And then in contrast to that, actually, we we swing around a little bit and then we go from that into this moment of our Lord. Because our Lord was a political statement. It was a social statement. This is a land where there are lords, right? So by choosing to to talk about it like this, it's, it's a political and social act in a moment of defiance. Shane Claiborne, uh, who writes a, who's written a variety of books, but at some stage he makes the comment that, that our understanding of lordship is hard because we don't have lords in American society. So he makes the point uh, a couple of election cycles ago that we need to be about Jesus for president because that would be the equivalent of it, right? And you can begin to see this rich tapestry that's tied together as this creed is laid out and these broad roads are cast. I believe in Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord. And then we get to this, to, to the, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is interesting. It's the kind of thing that shows up in what uh, we sang about and to some degree we read about earlier. It's the section that shows up in the first bit of John where it says, uh, I love the message translation is that God became one of us and moved into the neighborhood. It is the notion that God is removed from up high, becomes, leaves that place to come down to be amongst us, to build in that Abba relationship. And for some of us, I think, I have friends, I have friends who will say like, I have doubts. I don't know how I feel about this whole virgin birth thing because let's be honest, that's, that's not how babies come about. That's not how it works. And that's true, right? That's not the way in how it works. And at the same time, there's, there's a bit of challenge to say, well, if we remove the miraculous from the gospels, we're not left with much good news if we move, remove the parts that we can't justify and don't understand from, from the scriptures as they show up, we're not left with that much scripture. There's a, a, a theologian and commentator, J.I. Packer, basically says, if we believe in the primary, primary action and activity of Jesus, which would be his death and resurrection on a cross, uh, and that's his departing miracle, then believing in his entry miracle of a virgin birth is, raises no special difficulty. Right? There, if everything is premised on a death and a resurrection and we believe that, then the other miracles around the margin should not be that hard for us to grasp and comprehend. Even while we struggle sometimes. Even while it's hard sometimes. And that's what, broadly, that section, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's, that's the section of the creed that we have today. So then, then we turn from that and that declaration and let's talk a bit about what it means and what it means for us. 
because I think the creed has very concrete and deep and meaningful things to say to us. In particular, the society in which we find ourselves, which broadly, I love the quote that John has said from some time, a couple of times from, from Carl Jung of, the world will ask you who you are, and if you do not have an answer, it will tell you. Because what this means is a stance against the broad sense of secularism that exists in our world and a broad stance of what gets called moralistic therapeutic deism. The idea that there's a God who loves you when you do good and doesn't like you when you do bad, who wants you to do good things uh, and is abstract and removed from all of our day day in and day out life. Because at the heart of the gospel is really the the declaration uh, and really just a comment on the, the scandal and exclusivity of grace that shows up. That in the action of the gospel and the heart of Jesus, we see both this sense of this scandalous relationship and we see this outflowing of grace. Not scandal as an inflammatory, but scandal as in that you and I as broken, hurt, and frankly sinful people get invited into a party by which we have no right to attend. That we, with the baggage that we bring, that with the hesitation and reservations and issues that we bring, are invited in to use the same language with our Heavenly Father that Jesus does. That we can reference the one who made us, who knit us together in our mother's womb as Abba, as Father. Tim Keller, who is a a church planter and theologian and preacher, uh, puts it this way, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. And that, that, my friends, is a stand against the powers that be and the forces of this age that tell us we are defined by our actions or we are defined by our status or we are defined by our wealth or our intellect or our physical capabilities that we are defined by our looks, that we are defined by anything. Instead, we are defined by this Abba relationship that pursued us before we had anything to do with it. And then the question turns into what is it that we're supposed to do with this? What is it we do? If we take this seriously, what do we do? And I think the declaration for that is both simple to say And hard to live out. Because what we need to do is focus on Jesus. What we need to do is to become like the one who came to redeem us. To restore us. To to build a pathway for our own restoration. And if if we look at the book of Acts, this is what we see again and again. The book of Acts follows up the Gospels, right? So we have the Gospels that have the activity and action of Jesus. And then the book of Acts are the outflowing of his disciples and followers and the things that happen. And what they do again and again is there's miracles. There's things that happen. People's lives are changed and transformed. And all the time what they're doing is they're pointing back to the works of Jesus. They do it in verses like Acts 2 where it says... Peter is making a declaration and he just points to the resurrection of Jesus and he says that he believes, that he trusts, that he enacts a faith towards the God who raised Jesus to life because we all witnessed it. He points again and again. Paul becomes converted. Paul meets God along a road when he is not seeking it. His life is transformed and changed. And Paul says, I need to be like this person because suddenly everything is different. 
Suddenly the weight that he bared on his shoulders is removed. Suddenly a new identity is restored and God the Father becomes God the Abba. It shows up, we, we see the gospel in, in things like Luke 15. And this is a chapter in the book where it's talking about things that are lost, a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost child. And it talks about how God reaches out uh, in the story, in the parable of the sheep, it tells about how a shepherd goes to find the one sheep who's lost and leaves the 99 where they're safe and then comes back and rejoices and have a party about the sheep that was lost. It tells about the story of a woman who loses a coin and she turns her whole house over because it of such value that she finds that she has a party because everything is restored. It tells about a son who who, who leaves, who says to his family, I wish you were dead, I am gone, I am out. And a family who waits and longs and when the sun returns, they rejoice and there's a party because things are restored. What we do with it, what we do with sections like this is we understand that if you are lost, if you have ever felt lost, not that someone else said you were lost, but if you said in your own heart and in your own mind, yeah, I'm there, then know that there is a God who is calling for you as a son or a daughter to return, to crawl back into their lap, If you are at a place where sin is heavy on you, where the bottle looms large, where the laptop in a dark room calls for your attention, where the hurtful words just seem to come out, there's a God who calls for you to return, an Abba Father who calls for you. If you have a sense of pride, if you have a sense of weight, of leading yourself, then Jesus says things like, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, if you are at a stage where you are tired of being the own leader of your life, where the weight of the decisions and all the things you have to do is crushing you. Come back to the Father who calls. And the other thing is that for those of us who have grown up in the faith, those of us that have heard these stories and know these tales, but they are removed and abstract. Or maybe there was a moment when you were a kid or you were at a camp or you were at an event and things felt real then and they haven't felt real in years or decades, it's the same call. Come back to the Father. Not one of judgment, not one of condemnation, not one who leads with you know what you did is wrong, but one who you can come and say, Daddy, and collapse into who you can come and release yourself before. One in whom you can sob and know that you are accepted and loved for what you have this day. I don't know your story, but I know that that is the call that God gives to all of us each day and every day. We've been working through this series on the Apostles' Creed and it feels appropriate in the midst of that that we read the Apostles' Creed. 
So, as you are able, I invite you to stand and we're going to read this creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will ju judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Abba, Daddy, we come before you today not that we have life figured out, not that we have any right to come before you on any given day. We are flawed and broken. I have issues, and we all have issues. And you come and meet us in the midst of brokenness. You came for us when we were still in rebellion. You came for us when we choose to rebel again. We are sorry, and we give thanks that you come to us. God, may we be people who listen to you and respond. May your love sink down into our hearts, and may we understand that we are your sons and your daughters. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of calling in a deep and intimate relationship with you. Give us grace and mercy this day. And may you transform us each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.